Welcome to this episode of the Classical U Podcast. I'm excited today to be talking with Junius Johnson. He's in our studios recording a couple of new courses for Classical U with us that we're very excited about, as well as a forthcoming book with our imprint, Classical U Books. The book is on teaching fairy stories, and that's the conversation that we're having today. Junius is a speaker, educator, consultant at JuniusJohnson.com. And welcome, Junius. In our first conversation together, uh, into the topic of the imagination, um, a good bit, and I'd love to jump in there and uh, and kind of indulge uh, and get a little bit uh, maybe nerdy together. I don't know what the right word is, um, but the topic of fairy and um, the imagination is something that I get excited about. So we'll probably, uh, you know, overindulge, uh, but Hey, uh, we're just going to do it. So um, one of the, one of the things we talked about this week during some of our lunches that, uh, that is, you know, certainly going to be continuing to, you know, I'll be continuing to mull over it in my own mind, but the relationship between um, the fall, the, the fall of uh, humanity and the realm of fairy, um, I, I love how you uh, talk about that. And uh, you and I uh, found that we agreed on, you know, kind of arcane theological point that um, the laws, the physical laws of entropy are a result of the human fall. Not every Christian certainly would, you know, come to that, uh, would agree with that. But um, if the fall is sort of that basic of a uh, feature of our of our world, um, how does the world of fairy relate and, and provide us with a way of um, seeing reality, uh, an unfallen reality in, in a sense? Um, how, how does the realm of fairy um, help with that vision uh, that that we can get very, I think, um, just make the assumption that this world is all, all that there is, you know, that the law of ent entropy is uh, sort of a God-given reality. Uh, and if we t take that assumption away, there's a radical um, implications of, well, what is real? And, uh, and we need the imagination then. Uh, so anyway, the relationship between fairy and uh, paradise yeah. Uh, I guess it was uh, gosh, it's such a rich topic, um, as, as we've already discovered, and I've got new thoughts even just hearing you talk about it right now. Um, so I'm going to start somewhere different than where I started when we talked about this at lunch. Um, where I'm going to start, I think, is here. Um, in, in many of the traditions, in some ways in every one of the fairy traditions, although in some corners it's you could dispute it, and I won't get that technical. Um, the standard line is that the fairy realm, which you know Tolkien uses the older appellation for it, is the realm perilous, which I love. The realm perilous is older than ours. The fairies may be, um, they may be fallen angels. They may be uh, the remnants of the old gods and powers who were around before. You know, maybe they were part of the chaos out of which that was chastened to make space for our creation. I feel like that's actually the one that dominates most versions of the stories. Is the fairies are these older powers that um, they just have their own thing going on, you know, and they're they're not 
fundamentally hostile or friendly to humans because they don't they aren't fundamentally oriented to us at all. They're they're pursuing their own history. If there's a fairy bible, we have no idea what its contents are, you know, what their what their sacred history would be or even their secular history. Um, it's one of the things that makes them dangerous to humans is because their reactions to us are so unpredictable and their ways of thinking are so different to ours. Um, they fit in this group of folks that Lewis describes in the discarded image as the longiri, right? Those who have are the long-lived. Um, and often there's, there's a sense of de-eternity, everlastingness about fairies. So um, taking that as a starting point, um, that obviously suggests a notion of the realm perilous as a realm that predates the entire realm of human history, and therefore that is earlier than the fall. Um, and if it's not ordered to the human realm, then it also would not be subject to fall with us in the same way that the material creation that is ordered to humans as their vice regent was subject and does groan along with us in that fall. Um, and so... Maybe one of the reasons why the laws of fairyland differ so greatly from the laws of our world is because they're obeying, they're marching to a different drum and possibly an unfallen drum. Um, now, that said, I want to come, I want to slice across that with an entirely different notion, which is um, that speaking of fairyland, that's taking fairyland on its own terms as if the ways that it's presented in the tradition are actually in the real world true of it. Now let's come at it as, a, uh, as an invention of human minds, which really I think means an invention of God's mind set in the world for humans to rediscover. It's the glory of God to hide a thing, but the glory of kings is to search them out. Um, so then what Fairyland turns into, and you'll see very clearly, G.K. Chesterton speaks very clearly about it in this way in The Ethics of Elfland. He says, it's not earth that judges heaven, it's heaven that judges earth. It's not the real world that judges Fairyland, it's Fairyland that judges the real world. Fairyland exists to hold up a mirror to reality, but it's a funhouse mirror. It's a mirror that distorts. But as Chesterton says in his novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, he's talking about disguises. He says, these disguises didn't disguise but revealed. These distortions of fairyland don't distort reality. They de-distort it back into its true form so we can actually see it properly. Which means in fairyland, we'll need to see, we'll, we'll see both the unfallen, reflection of something of the unfallen character of our world, but we also have to see the reflection of the fallen character of our world. It's perilous to us, both because in fairyland, everything is magnified. And so our sin and the results of our sin are magnified in fairyland. That's why so many of the fairy stories hinge around this very tiny prohibition, right? Um, you can live forever in happiness with the princess as long as you don't show her an onion, <laughs> right? It's seemingly weird, random, irrelevant condition. Um, it's kind of like you're saying, you know, you can live forever in joy in paradise as long as you don't eat that apple. Right? There's a strong connection there. Everything is magnified, everything is blown up. And so when you look at something like George MacDonald's Fantasties, where Anodos goes through and commits these you know, seemingly small transgressions that have these massive consequences for himself and for others. And there's a great deal of damage around himself as he goes through fairyland transgressing. That's a part of the peril of it. The other part of the peril of it, though, is that it, um, in, in being in many ways good itself, like Aslan, who is good but not safe, good things aren't safe for us because we aren't good yet. And so Fairyland, if it turns the world on its head, and it does, it does so in order to present the world more rightly to men who have turned themselves on their heads 
Homo curvatus and say, as Augustine says, man twisted in upon himself. So you're not seeing the world well. You're upside down. So we're going to flip it upside down so you, begin, you can begin to see it well again. So I think there's all of these dynamics running through fairyland where it, it, it's able to be a mirror of the world that was, the world that could have been, the world that is, and in some ways even the world that may be mm -hmm. all in one. So... Um I, I've read a little bit about, uh, you know, fairy sort of, there's multiple ways that it, that it gets talked about and uh, you can, and, and you've brought a few of those up just now in, in a very rich uh, layered answer. Um, but I think the uh, kind of world of archetypes, the symbolic world, you know, is, is one way that it's talked about kind of uh, Jungian categories maybe. And um, you've got, um, an almost historical or uh, you know anthropological approach. Um, you and uh, what what are some of the uh, categories that you find most helpful? Um, you know, you talked about the the approach of uh, this is something in the human imagination uh, versus this is something real in its own right. Um, I think some of uh, some of the ways of thinking about this, uh, though, <clears throat> could even put those two things not at odds with each other. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the human imagination is engaged with uh, realities that transcend this fallen world, and uh, and therefore, uh, in some way, um, it's both a product of the human imagination and um, in touch with uh, higher, deeper, you know, realities. Um, but but I guess what I'm asking, I'm wandering a bit here. Um, but I'm 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 curious what realms of discourse, like what um, almost uh, academic disciplines, you found helpful uh, in engaging this this whole this whole topic? Because um, there are you can you can come at it, you know, as a theologian, uh, maybe through psychology, uh, through history or metaphysics. Um, What's helpful? Yeah, um, for me personally, uh, philosophy, theology, and I was going to say literature, but I'm going to say poetics instead, which I think has a, a different connotation and brings brings a bit more to the table than just saying literature would, because I include in that poetic modes of discourse, ways of talking about it. Uh, we spoke in the last podcast about you know starting my classes with these beautiful prose passages to inflame the student's heart, that kind of thing. So the ethics of Elfland, I would say, is a poetic approach to talking about fairyland. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, one of the things that people want to know when they start talking about fairies and dragons is, you know, do you think these things are real? And the, the best response to them is, what do you mean by real? <laughs> because... Um, a really important thing that I think I think Jesus worked really hard to try to teach us this, and I don't think we've learned the lesson very well. Thoughts are real. The reason that if, the reason it's true that if you even uh, look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her, is because your thoughts are real things. They are actual deeds for which you will be held accountable on Judgment Day. If that's true, then the products of our imagination are real. Now, there's different modalities of the real. And things that are within the mind don't have, they have a type of reality that is different than things that are outside the mind do. I can pick up things outside the mind. Well, not all things, only physical things outside the mind I can pick up, not so much the other way. That doesn't mean they're less real, right? So to be non-physical is not necessarily to be less real. It's just to be differently real. 
And I think that's another move that's very hard for us to make this side of so much materialism and physicalism is to, to not fall into the trap of thinking that concrete means physical when it doesn't necessarily. So if that's the case, you know, the products of our imagination are real and they're really doing things to us and they're really doing things to the world, even if there's no such thing as a fairy outside of my mind. That said, um, you, you spoke of archetypes, you spoke of a, a bit of some of these, you know, getting in touch with other things. I do think that the things that we embody in our imaginations, the, thing, the things that we embody in fairies and unicorns and dragons are real dynamics and principles and forces in the world. And so um, they don't exist in the way in which we imagine them in the world, I wouldn't say, but they, they're not any less, the less real for that. They're not any the less in the world for that. And so, um, you know, people acted differently in their lives for centuries because they believed, and still do, because they believed that there were literally fairies and if they didn't do certain things, certain consequences would happen. Some of that falls under superstition. You can see horseshoes nailed above barns all over Europe because the iron keeps the fairies from entering and, you know, souring the milk of the cow or stealing the cow's milk or whatever else. Um, but some of those were to do with prudent action in the world, with care for one another and for the community. Um, were this, the, the realm perilous, you don't ever notice how many fairy stories, not just fairy tales, but fairy stories have a moral, right? They're trying to move you to understand the world rightly. And so because of that, you've got this, this way of, it's, it's a mode of passing on wisdom. So for me personally, I tend to come at wisdom through philosophy. I tend to come at it through theology. I tend to come at it through this poetic form of discourse. Uh, I'm less given to psychology uh, in every imaginable way of thinking about that. But nevertheless, I am interested in what sort of philosophical psychology, which is you know what account do we give of the human soul and of its contents? And um, it is very much belongs to philosophy and even more so to theology to deal with the desires and the fears and uh, the hopes and the dreams of the human heart. And so um, I would bring those things under, under that sort of an umbrella as well. The question of um, what's real is often, I think, um, stirred up and, and made uh, more challenging when, as Christians, we start talking about uh, in relation to the kingdom of God. Um, and uh, one of the fun conversations uh, I enjoyed with you was talking about uh, animals and, uh, you know, animals uh, in heaven. And, uh, you know, uh, can you describe the history of Christian thought on that topic? And uh, you and I both uh, were uh, willing to say that um, animals uh, may, in fact, participate in the uh, transfiguring, you know, resurrection, the... Uh, the transfiguration of this world into, you know, the world of uh, God's kingdom um, as, as particular, you know, particular animals. Um, but uh, what's the history of Christian thought on that topic and, uh, and how, um, how would you articulate where you, where you might think uh, it's appropriate to go, uh, you know, um, on, on that issue? Yeah, it, it's been a thorny. It's been it's been difficult for the church to think about anything like individual animal immortality because of the philosophical milieu in which Christianity arose. Um, certainly, you know, for Aristotle, particulars don't survive their dissolution, and so the notion of reconstitution of a story particular doesn't work for Aristotle. Um, even you know, in a, on a strict, a really strict Aristotelian metaphysic, when my body dies, and then 
some unspecified amount of time later, I'm subject to the resurrection of the dead, Aristotle would say it's not the same body. Even if I get all the same atoms back, it's not the same body because the, it's been destroyed. The form has gone. And so, um, but uh, but also for Plato, you know, there's, there's a, it, Plato does not have a lot of space for affirming the physical material world, not material. Material is actually anachronistic for Plato. That's Aristotle's term. But the physical world, everything about the physical world, including human bodies, is directed to the world of the forms. And it's a, it's a declination away from the world of the forms and is to be overcome in the return to the world of the forms. And that's why philosophy, Platonic philosophy, is detachment from the physical um, in order to reattach yourself to the forms. So, um, well, this joins with the Christian, uh, the native Christian idea about not being wed to this world, not being of, you know, being in the world, but not of it, um, leaving this world, dying to self, the world will be overturned in fire and, and all these other sorts of things. And so it kind of feels like, yeah, this is one of the things Plato and Aristotle were getting right, you know, but there's that pesky doctrine of the resurrection of the body. If the body is going to be raised as a physical thing, it belongs to physical things to be in physical contexts. Or to put it differently, bodies need worlds. <laughs> and so we have the doctrine of a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven itself being a creation, a new heavens, a new sky, not a new glorious afterlife. And then that, that amazing moment in Revelation when the city of Jerusalem comes down to rest on earth. And so the, the last biblical image we get of bliss, of, of the blessed life of, the, of, of life after death, is not of ascending to God to some heaven above, but of God coming down here in a city that needs no temple because the Lamb himself is its temple, right? Um, that, all, that all combines to make an image of a new physical world populated by physical things. And so then one can ask the question of identity. Is it this world transformed or is this world destroyed and a new world is made? Well, you can start casting out scriptures, right? Behold, I make all things new, but now I'm going to cast away the old world like a garment and, and whatnot. And it doesn't really answer your question very well. Um, but what it leads me to think about um, is uh, this question of the results of the fall um, and what's right, what makes sense for God to do as a result of the fall. So... By the time we get to some things, to someone like Bonaventure in the 13th century, and he's not unique in saying this, um, a, a way that they have tried to sort of synthesize these different streams is to say, well, animals, particular animals, pets, right, they'll live on with us in heaven because we'll remember them. And so great will be the power of our thoughts that it will be as if they were with us. But their, but their immortality is according to a different mode than the existence that, that, that is proper to them as creatures. Namely, it's non-physical. My, my dog lives on in my mind. My cat lives on in my mind, not as something that I could interact with and play with and that sort of a thing. But I got to think, and so for a long time, and, and also, uh, sorry, another thing that contributes to this is the fact that rationality is the thing that has been valued, right? What makes someone a person, Boethius says, a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Animals lack rational souls, and so they're not susceptible of salvation. They're not susceptible of ongoing things. Human souls last forever. Animal souls are destroyed with the destruction of the animal. Uh, so for for a long time, I thought that I thought well, animals don't can't be saved. <laughs> animals animals won't show up in their particularities in the afterlife because that's not the type of thing that animals are. 
But then I began to think, you know, if we take seriously this notion that the, that the nature of reality was changed at the fall, and it doesn't matter for this purpose whether you think the fall was a historical event or whether you think that it is a theological reality that corresponds to no particular thing. The bottom line is if reality is otherwise than it would have been because of human sin, then the original conception of animals would have been immortality because there was no death. Death is a consequence of sin. It seems strange. Animals... You know, they're subject to groaning, they're, they're subjected to futility in human sin along with the rest of creation, but it is not through any sin or fault of their own. It seems weird for an animal that was originally meant to live forever to not live forever because of human sin, an external sin, right? When even humans who sin will live forever. So they can begin to push me in the other direction. And, you know, there's this notion that God doesn't waste anything. The, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable and these sorts of things. And, uh, and, and as far as I and my limited human understanding can judge, when I very much want to underscore this is pure speculation based upon my limited understanding, it seems that it would be more just for animals, for particular animals to see some sort of restoration in that final kingdom of God than for them not to in terms of the restoration of the original divine purposes for those animals as animals. You do seem to have, you know, in a in a whole scriptural uh, tradition, you know, uh, Jewish and Christian scriptures, this preponderance of, you know, all of creation um, kind of hanging together. You know, um, it's all, you know, clapping its hands and shouting and praising God. It's all groaning. Uh, there's this sense that, um, you know, from the mountains and the rivers to the, you know, the the beasts and birds of the field. Um, it's we're all in something in, in, in a certain regard together. We're all in it together. Um, there's also, um, you know, recognition of different modes of life or, you know, um, but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think uh, that image that you referred to of, you know, uh, heaven coming down, God coming to us, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, Emmanuel and, and incarnational, um, that's a transfiguring of our entire history, our entire cosmos, um, lines up well, you know, with script, scripture so that uh, in a certain regard, you know, death and, and so many characteristics of this cosmos are tossed aside like a garment, but uh, also everything is made new, you know, at the same time. That's right. Uh, yeah, because a cosmos without entropy would be very different than the cosmos we know, yeah. but it would not necessarily have to be numerically different to the cosmos we know. Yeah. And then for the first time we could really see it yeah. because we'd see it in its true form. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, we're obviously and, uh, you know, uh, in an entirely speculative mode and, and realm, uh, you know, not talking about doctrine, but just talking about uh, theologomenon or, you know, um, matters of opinion. But... Uh, but yeah, I've I've felt that way increasingly myself. That what really uh, lines up with scripture uh, is that uh, particular uh, animals, and uh, you know, getting getting into the question of um, uh, you you had talked at the beginning, of, you know, when you were in the mode of talking about the Roma fairy as uh, something, you know, either prior to, if you want to use temporal terms, or uh, I would say maybe. Um, you know, beyond or, or within, <laughs> deeper than or, or outside of um, our realm um, with its own uh, kind of story and um, 
issues, uh, you know, maybe its own uh, kind of fallenness or uh, uh, lack of fall in, in, in various respects, um, maybe both of those things. But um, that would then come in potentially uh, to uh, something that we're, we're ultimately able to engage with uh, in, in our um, resurrected bodies, you know, our spiritual embodiment. Um, that we would then uh, not only bring sort of, uh, all, you know, animal and plant life and, you know, the mountains and streams and, you know, hills and valleys and oceans of this world, but all of that would come into uh, participation with, in a, in a more complete uh, sense, something that is real, that now we engage with through our hearts and minds, you know, and imaginations um, as products of our own longings and thoughts but that may have a reality in its own right. Yeah, that's interesting. If there turns out to be a real fairyland out there somewhere, then God who is reconciling all things, part of what the reconciling might look like is bringing these realms that have only tangentially touched one another into full contact with one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I, I love to, to um, have that hope, I suppose mm -hmm. you could uh, put it that way. Um, we also talked a little bit, uh, and this, this is related, um, but I think maybe um, the, anyone who's still listening to us <laughs> um, might be might be relieved to hear that uh, sort of uh, we we would draw the line somewhere, uh, which is uh, you know fictional uh, you know fictional uh, characters. Um, uh, I loved an, an old essay by Joshua Gibbs, uh, First Thursday Institute, on, on his uh, delightful blog that uh, for many years, but a long long time ago. I, um, maybe close to a decade, about uh, fictional characters in heaven. And uh, he makes quite a robust case for it. But um, it is uh, there, I think it's more along the lines of like what you were describing with Bonaventure, you know, that uh, we would remember our animals, but, but a sense in which um, we will remember the fictional characters that we love. Um, and they'll have a part, uh, you know, a, a kind of reality in our lives together. Um, you know, imagine an eternity with Tolkien, uh, you loving Aragorn, Tolkien loving Aragorn, me loving Aragorn, you know, uh, and uh, what, what does that mean? Um, so there, there's a kind of um, a real place, but nonetheless, Aragorn is not, uh, you know, a spiritual embodiment right. alongside of us, right. you know, as we are claiming maybe our dogs might be. But um, anyway, uh, thoughts on, on kind of fictional characters yeah. and the difference there. Yeah, this all kind of started when Jesse and I were talking and I was reporting him that my son picked up the idea, I don't know if it was from my daughter or somewhere else, that um, the real Paw Patrol would be in heaven. <laughs> and so then he's been saying that he wants to die because he wants to meet the real Paw Patrol. <laughs> uh, keeping a very close eye on that one. Um, but um, yeah, you know, I, I, there's a distinction to be made, right? Because what we're talking about here, what, what for me at least is underlying my choices in these speculative matters is a sense of justice and a sense of wisdom, right? That, that I believe that God will act justly and wisely. And I know that if I'm wrong, whatever God is going to do is going to be more just and more wise than what I thought of. And even if I'm right, what God does is going to be more just and one more wise than the way that I thought of it. So, yeah, this is, there's, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, but um, so, so for me, justice means that my cat, who has an existence outside of my mind, ought to have an existence outside of my mind in the, next, in the life to come. 
But Aragorn, who does not have an existence outside of the minds of the people thinking about him, Tolkien and Jesse and Junius, it's not required in the same way that he exists outside of our minds because if he exists only in our minds there, that would be in good proportion to the way that he exists here. However, two things are really, really different in the life to come that could have major implications for Aragorn's existence there without giving him extra mental, spiritual, embodied existence. The first is our minds are going to work so much better. Right? Our minds work really badly right now. And I say this as someone who lives the life of the mind and make money on my mind. It, it sucks. I, I am at cross purposes with myself all the time because of my sin. My sin causes me to undercut myself. It causes me to work against myself. It blinds me to things that I otherwise ought to see. The world isn't the way that it is. I can't perceive the world as well. Uh, in, in very profound ways, how we perceive the world is, is not determined, but it's very affected by what we think and what we believe and what we hold on to in our hearts. Um, and so with all of that intellectual faculty, you know, polished up, the dirt getting off and uh, supercharged by union and participation in the divine life, um, my imaginings of Aragorn will be more robust to such an extent that it may approach a qualitative rather than a quantitative difference. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we're under the curse of Babel. Right? There's, a, there's a divine curse on human language and really on all human communication, if you take language broadly, that is intended to keep us from being able to fully unburden ourselves to one another, to fully make ourselves known to one another. It's one of the reasons why when you read that passage about then we shall, be, we shall know fully even as we are fully known, it, it's so heart-achingly wonderful because we know we're not fully known here by anybody we meet. Right? That's going to be gone in the new heavens and the new earth. The things Tolkien was trying to tell us about Aragorn that he was not able to because of the limitations of art and language, he will be able to tell us. The things that he didn't, that he in no way intended, but that are part of my understanding of Aragorn, I will be able to fully communicate to you. And so the Tolkien fan club in heaven gets together <laughs> and we talk about Aragorn and every single person brings a new aspect of this character, character that's really true and that can truly be communicated. And we come away with this way richer understanding of him as a result of that true communication. I think those two things together give Aragorn a supercharged possibility in heaven that exceeds anything we can imagine here without giving him the same sort of existence as a person in heaven as Jesse will have or as St. Teresa will have or what have you. So there may be hope for your son's, uh, you know, dreams of a Paw Patrol fan club. That's right. That's right. He may not he may not shake hands with Chase and Marshall, and yet the ways that he's able to commune with these characters there will be deeply satisfying to him in exactly the way he, well, actually, not exactly the way he desires, but in a way that satisfies exactly what he longs for to an extent that he doesn't know how to long for. I am wondering how many people just, you know, tuned out when we when we brought up the Tolkien fan club in heaven, but uh, <laughs> the, um, or tuned in, you know. Uh, so... Um, there's an image in C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves uh, where he's describing, you know, it's this heart, heartbreakingly beautiful passage. He's talking about the loss of Tolkien, I think, as a friend uh, because of death um, and, and using that to talk about friendship. And um, But he draws this picture with his words of, you know, the beatific vision. Uh, everyone gathered around God in eternity, paradise, Delighting in God's presence, delighting in God's goodness and beauty and love uh, directly. But then he says, you know, we're, we're in a circle and uh, we're all 
growing uh, infinitely in our capacity to receive and enjoy and uh, return thanks uh, for God's love, uh, to, see, to, see, to, to, to behold that together. But we're helped by each other yeah. in that. And he says, you know, I'm going to see sort of out of the corner of my eyes the delight on the face, the maybe he, if we were this, I think he's primarily focusing on language of vision, mm -hmm. but if we were to add in uh, music, which I know is near and dear to your heart, and we imagine ourselves, you know, <clears throat> not only radiating delight with our facial expressions, but uh, singing mm -hmm. together and on uh, all of that, uh, making art together. And, um, <clears throat> and I'm going to see out of the corner of my eyes, as it were, the way in which you're responding to God and that's going to help me to see something about the God that I'm loving and delighting in uh, that I was not uh, seeing before. And that's just this mutual escalation yeah. you know, uh, of infinite. I'm going to take Lewis one step further on that. Um, but before I do, I'm going, to, I'm going to point out that you know, in this life, because we can, because we're not never, you know, barring some sort of <clears throat> miraculous divine intervention that may or may not have ever been used in the past, we're not ever going to be rid of our sin. Our sanctification is an asymptotic approach to the point of being sanctified. Um, but the growth that we experience in heaven is not asymptotic because there's not a fixed point that we're ever more incrementally approaching. The, the fixed point is removed. And now we can grow unboundedly forever because there's no limit to what that can look like. And that, and that fully exceeds human conception. Um, Lewis is starting there from Augustine's notion that in heaven, we don't need to look at one another. We'll look at God and we'll see everyone else through God as they are prototypically uh, imaged forth in the sun. Um, Bonaventure then um, moves a step beyond Augustine and he says he has this image in a, a book of his called the, the Soliloquy um, uh, that heaven is like a banquet, a, a progressive banquet. And so tonight, the banquet is at Jesse's house in heaven. I go to prepare a room for you. Room for you. And Jesse is going to be making, what's something, what's a food you really love? Uh, Jeltsa's. It's a dumpling, a pork dumpling. Yeah, gyoza. Okay, so yeah. So, maybe not with pigs. So he's going to so he's gonna make he's gonna make these pork dumplings. Why not? They taste, pigs taste amazing. Those aren't going to go away. So he's going he's gonna to make them, which I, which I can now hear. I've been pronouncing incorrectly all my life. Um, and I, I trust Jesse's pronunciation. Well, that's the Taiwanese. You, you, you have a good Mandarin. Oh, well, great. Thank you for that. Um, so he's making, you know, these are these the little Asian dumplings. You guys know what they are. He's going to make those. And here's the thing. He's the only person in heaven who makes them because he was created by God with a special understanding of them so that he could make them in the best imaginable way, which it turns out is not one single imaginable way. And we'll see that in a second. So we'll go there and we'll eat of these. And it's like, oh, my gosh, that's so amazing. Tomorrow night you're coming over to my house. And in my house, I'm serving donuts. And I make, I'm the only guy who makes donuts, and I make the best donuts there are. And here's the interesting point. My donuts are informed by what I tasted in your dumplings. And so now I make my donuts a little bit differently. And we go through all of heaven with everyone making their dishes for each other, and then it gets back around to you again. And when you make your dumplings a second time, they're even better because they've been enriched by everybody else's food you've tasted along the way. And that just goes on and on around for eternity. And by the way, the angels are part of this too. It's not just the humans who are doing this. And what he means by that, you know, what's the food? If this is an analogy. Does Bonaventure use food? He does, Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Isn't it great? Yeah. The, the food is our understanding of God that we're being enriched from one another's vision of God. Um, and I think that's really, really beautiful. Now, um, because I think that 
each creature is made to be a specific, unique, and unrepeatable image of God to declare God in a unique way that only it of all creatures can do. And I mean that as much for cockroaches as I do for persons. Then I think that there is a, there's this powerful way in which when we look at something and we see it most truly and we see to the heart of what it is. You just, boy, you just brought cockroaches I into did. the beatific vision. I did bring right, cockroaches Continue. In. Yep. Uh, because as much as I may not like them, Right? <laughs> Our creator is good, and the works of Krigat are very good. Um, so when I see you most truly, what I see is the particular way in which you image God, and that sets off what Bonaventure calls a contuition, where I see you and by seeing you, not along with seeing you, not instead of seeing you, but by seeing you, very incarnational, I also see God. And I see God in a way I could not see him anywhere other than in you. Well, this grounds, and now I'm going beyond Bonaventure, and now we're into, into Junius. Um, this grounds the claim that we will not only gaze upon God in himself in heaven, I will also turn to you in heaven and gaze upon God in you. But, and this is the trick, Augustine was concerned about, he's, he's a Platonist, and for Plato, you're contemplating the forms, and the moment you get, have a moment of inattention and glance away from the forms anywhere else, you fall. And Augustine's worried about that. He wants to lock us into that beatific vision. But the way that I preserve Augustine's concern is turning to you does not require turning from God. Mm -hmm. I'm turning to God in you, and I can really look at you and see God in that way too. And so then that takes us even out. It doesn't have to be the corner of your eye. Yeah. We can actually yeah. meet lock gazes and all of that beautiful information that can be transferred in the, in the mutual gaze and regarding of one another will be there. And the content of that will both be you being truly known by me and also me being taught by you about aspects of God that I could only learn if I looked at you. Mm -hmm. So our, our sanctification, uh, that, that kind of line uh, that, that we cross that uh, is the capacity to see God yeah. um, you know, in, in each other. That's right. And so the beatific vision yeah. is ubiquitous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, to give Lewis as much credit as possible, um, he he is hinting at all of that. I, I think he's going a little beyond Augustine uh, and and some of Augustine's anxieties um, by at least granting us the corner of our eyes. I completely agree. Yeah, and uh, and he and, does. And, and I needed his step to make my step too. <laughs> yeah. I, I love how you you know you bring it right to locking eyes, and uh, and you were talking just a little bit ago about. Um, um, you know, known uh, to be known, you know, um, and, and that that's that fully knowing uh, is uh, it's just as you say it's it's soul it's it's a, it's a, it's a kind of heart and soul agony uh, to to think uh, we taste it now you know we see it we see it in our in our loved ones in our interactions but we know uh, it's, it's, it's like it's, it's just out of reach I can almost. Yeah. But that that would be something we enjoy uh, together because um, we see the image of God, um, you know. And of course, uh, there's just uh, many beautiful examples of this in poetry and literature. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, you know, has has uh, wonderful Christ plays in you know, ten thousand places. The um, and Lewis, when you talked about Bonaventure using the food image, which I've got to look that passage up. I'm not um, shame on me. That sounds it's pretty obscure. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would love for you to email me uh, yeah. uh, that passage. Lewis does end with bread, actually. Yeah. He, so he ends uh, his little passage in the Four Loves, uh, the sharing of the heavenly bread. Um, uh, the more the more uh, you taste of the bread, the, the more uh, I can't 
quote him, um, but he's talking about this this um, infinite expansion and escalation of our enjoyment um, of the feast together. Yeah, that's right. And, and and what are we what are we doing in that moment? Like, what's happening is we're each you know because we're each priest, we're a royal priesthood, and our priesthood is a participation in the archetypal priesthood of Christ, who's our great high priest in the heavens. And what I'm doing when you come to my house in that analogy, in that banquet analogy, is I'm feeding you from myself. Mm-hmm. And so what do we do but what we see our high priest doing is he feeds us from himself in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. However you take that, listeners, whether you think that's a real presence or whether you think that's metaphorical, it's, it's still theologically true that Christ feeds us with himself. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you shall not have life within you. And then we do the same thing in our banquet in an analogous way. That means analogous means that it's not exactly the same. It is attuned to the types of being we are. Um, but, you know, what a joy to be converted into the type of thing that can feed my neighbor in his love of God, in her love of God, right? Uh, it's just such a powerful image of heaven. I want to say something about heaven <clears throat> while I've got all of you guys captive, um, and that is this. Um, I have at times in my life been afraid to speculate about heaven because I've been afraid of getting it wrong, um, and especially I've been afraid of getting attached to an image that I have no right to and possibly setting myself up for disappointment when I get there. Well, that's silly. Um, It is impossible to be disappointed by heaven. It's heaven, it can't disappoint you, right? So here's the trick. Whatever Whatever the thing is that you're expressing, the longing that you're expressing in your desire to fly in heaven or read all the books in heaven or whatever, if heaven doesn't have that thing in the way that you think it does, it will have something that satisfies that desire you have to a deeper and fuller extent than the image you've come up with. So for whatever reason you wish you could fly in heaven, if you can't fly in heaven, there'll be something you can do in heaven that will scratch exactly that itch and be better. I think this means that we should feel free to speculate freely about heaven because I find that when I do so, it increases my imagination, my ability to imagine the goods of heaven, which draws me further on, which becomes an inducement to um, stay in the course and fighting the good fight. So once again, we have to use our imaginations for our imaginations to grow. Let's even use our imaginations on heaven, always keeping in mind that it, it is guaranteed to be at least as good as whatever we come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I've been struck as over the course of our conversation that we keep alluding to, sometimes quite directly um, earthly relationships, the, the, you know, the here and now, um, each other's faces, our families, meals, um, homes. And, uh, you know, so we're participating now. Yeah. And, uh, and that, uh, that freedom to imagine um, what it is we're participating in um, to, to grow and expand our, our, imagine, uh, our imaginal capacity um, is um, a blessing here and here and now. It, it's it's guiding us. It's giving us moral. Uh, it, it's in, it's uh, sort of refining our moral compass yeah. um, and refining, uh, expanding our loves uh, and our sense of what is ju- you know what is what is the call of justice now. Um, what is the image of God in my neighbor? Um, all of these things. Uh, so it's, it's it's intensely practical and immediate. At the same time as, uh, yeah, I used to um, have similar anxieties. Mine were more tied to, you know, am I am I trying to escape, you know, the here and now, sort of shirk shirk my duties, mm-hmm. etc. But I had a kind of similar sequence of realizing, uh, 
you know, actually, when I quote unquote indulge these things, you know, read Harry Potter or whatever, you know, I'm I'm really coming away a better husband, better father, um, better friend, because uh, it's it's um, it's engaging me yeah. in uh, reality now uh, in in a fallen world. So, um, so uh, this is just delightful. Um, so many things are coming to mind. Uh, spiritual embodiment. We've used that phrase a little bit. Um, I think it might be helpful to talk about that briefly. But um, uh, a couple other things come to mind. But let me pitch it back to you. Anything else we've got? Maybe you know. 15 minutes or so um, before we should wrap this up, but anything over the course of our conversation that you'd want to revisit, define, uh, spiritual embodiment comes to mind for me, but anything from you? Well, just to, to say a big yes and to what you just said there at the end, um, you talked about how this is, you know, the sort of imagining of heaven and things is very practical because it touches on our lives morally and any other sorts of ways and absolute yes to all those things. And on top of that, you know, if you do it with the right spirit, it's also itself an act of worship. It's an act of worshiping God. Um, that's where the, the, the contemplative and the active life collapse. The contemplative and the active life collapse around the worship of God because worship unites both activity and contemplation. And Paul's pray without ceasing is casting forth a vision that uh, increasingly can become real for the believer as they progress in sanctification that more and more of your activity comes under worship and more and more your activity becomes contemplative and your cont contemplation becomes activity. I think that's a, something important I'd want to make sure that, that folks catch in what we're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, spiritual embodiment, is an, it, uh, this is a topic that, that we are the American church has done a bad job on for a long time, um, making sure people understand the, the full ramifications of the resurrection of the body. Um, that, and so maybe I'll, maybe I'll take it from, from square one, just because I don't know where people are picking it up. Um, the Christian doctrine is that there will be a general resurrection, which means that everybody, both the saved and the damned, will be returned to their bodies. So what are the implications of that? Well, death is nothing other than the separation of body and soul. Um, most Christians believe that the soul remains aware after death, and so it's not as if um, you, your experience ceases when your soul separates from your body. It just changes to a different type of experience. Um, and that's what's, that's unnatural. That's, that's called by the scripture and by the tradition unnatural. The natural state of humanity is immortality. There have been a few exceptions that Athanasius seems to have thought that we were naturally mortal and, but we were created with a grace that made us immortal. And when we fell, God withdrew that grace and returned us to our mortal state. But he's definitely the minority in thinking something like that. Most Christians think we're naturally immortal and death brought us, uh, brought this, uh, a sin brought this unnatural death upon us. But here's the thing. Even, Unnatural death is temporary. It, it can't endure. So, so great is the bond between soul and body that it is bound to be overcome. Um, and so, um, and, we, and we can see that, so then that means that the state of being separated from our bodies is a monstrous one. That's a, that, that would be Aristotle's technical term for it. It's like a three-legged dog. A three-legged three dog is monstrous because it's not as it should be. It doesn't conform to the norm. And I think we can see echoes, glimpses in the scriptures of this, that um, in Revelation, there are all these saints who are hanging out underneath the throne of God. Um, and that might mean just like, you know, the throne is elevated and they're in front of it. But I always have had this image of like, kind of like Jabba the Hutt, you pull the throne back and there's all these saints under there in this little pit, you know. And, and they're saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long? 
And what does the Lord do? He gives them a robe and says, just a little longer. Well, the robe is a biblical image of the body. They're clamoring because they want to get their bodies back. They, they want the general resurrection. They don't feel whole without their bodies. That Yes, they're blessed, but they don't have the fullness of blessedness apart from their bodies. So then what this means, to get to the final payoff of all of this, is that our imaginings of heaven need to be intensely physical. Heaven is a place built for creatures with physical bodies. And that means that, you know, the pleasures of the body are going to be there in ways that we can't imagine. Food will be better in heaven than it is now. The joy of running, Lewis talks in the last battle about this, this wild joy of running as fast as you can and being able to run faster and faster and run up mountains and whatnot. Um, you know, whatever is good about the physical body will be there. Bonaventure has this notion, if you can't tell, Bonaventure is my favorite theologian. He has this notion, uh, that this, the body as we know it is not the, the best possible vessel for the soul. And so the body's going to get a fourfold dowry at the resurrection that will suit it better to be the vehicle of the soul. And that fourfold dowry consists in illumination. Um, and so luminosity, so the body will give off light, which is what enables you to look on my body and see my thoughts and understand what's going on inside of me. It will get... Um, uh, invulnerability, um, impassibility, right? It can no longer be wounded or damaged in any way. And then I love these two. It'll get agility, which is the ability to move at the speed of thought, <laughs> right? If, if you want to go visit the, if you want to go visit Pluto, just think it and you're there because your body can move that quickly. And it'll get subtlety. And subtlety is the ability for two bodies to exist in the same place. Subtlety is what's required for Christ to walk through walls, right? Because he has to be in, at some point during that process, he's in the same space the wall is in. Right now, bodies are repugnant to each other, but then they won't be repugnant to each other, right? Um, I think that's all quite lovely. And something that we talked about the other day that is very relevant here is um, if there's a new physics to go along with these new bodies, it's quite possible that we get a glimpse of it in the resurrected body of Christ, that Christ, the resurrected body of Christ, is able to walk through walls and teleport and change its appearance. The Emmaus disciples don't recognize him, um, not because he's using divine power to do miraculous things, but because his body brings with it the physics of the next world. And these are all parts of the physics of the next world, right? Luminosity would mean that I could change my external appearance and you would still recognize that it's me because it's a transparency of who I am through my body. My body perfectly expresses who I am, however it may be externally configured. Uh, I would hope that, what's, what, that what people are getting out of this conversation is a sense of, um, they could do this all day. Right? There's no end to the number of crazy things they can imagine about heaven. Yeah, that's the point, right? We all think we're like Han Solo. We can imagine a lot. But Han Solo couldn't imagine a lot. He does a particularly bad job of imagining what his reward would be. He's thinking money, but he gets a princess. He finds a wife, right? A change in his life. Um, we all need to learn to dream bigger, to imagine bigger, to expand those horizons. And I love this kind of conversation. Thank you for setting this conversation up because you know I'm saying things I've never thought before in the context of this conversation. Uh, you, you've got to constantly keep reaching beyond what you've thought to the next thing God wants you to think and to the next thing because you can be sure an infinite, omnipotent God has never run out of things to place in front of you to discover. Yeah, uh, I, I'm grateful uh, for someone who you know is willing to indulge and, and uh, go there. Um, 
there's there's not a lot of people that uh, you know that will sit and kind of talk comfortably about all of this because it you know you, you inevitably indulge in a bit of the ridiculous uh, you know as someone I once remember saying like every attempt to talk about you know uh, hev heavenly life uh, you know the beatific vision um, what it would actually be like quote unquote is going to fall prey to a kind of cartoonish absurdity. You know, it's, it's going to be profoundly ugly in some sense because um, we're trying to articulate something that um, that we glimpse, you know, in a glass darkly, as Paul says, or, you know, through a veil, uh, you know, I think, again, as Paul says, uh, you know, the veil of death now. So we participate in it, we glimpse it, um, but we can't really articulate it. We don't even have the right categories for yeah. it, you know. <laughs> but the um, But I do find it. Uh, very helpful to to stretch and to try a little bit. And um, the uh, you brought up Lewis's image of running uh, at you know at the end of the last battle. Um, that 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 whole book. The you know so there's so much in Lewis that's just profoundly helpful here. I think you and I talked earlier about um, the um, the great divorce. Uh, you know the the scenes in heaven. Uh, where you have the both, um, and it's kind of hard to tell them apart, actually, the angelic um, beings and the saints mm -hmm. um, in their spiritual embodiment. And, and Lewis just goes over the top describing spiritual embodiment and how tangible it is, how uh, profoundly concrete. It's more substantive, you know, than um, I love, uh, you know, reading um, the theological debates and stuff. There's an essay, The Material... Uh, the spiritual is more substantial than the material. I think is the title of the essay that um, David Bentley Hart wrote in a in a kind of a goofy debate that he and uh, N. T. Wright were having over in, uh, New Testament translations. But I love that essay, um, arguing that the spiritual is more substantial than the material. And uh, I'm just constantly reminded of Lewis, who I, I don't think I've ever read. There's some great stuff in McDonald and George McDonald uh, in. Uh, I think it's in Lilith, uh, but a scene that um, <clears throat> describes this kind of mutual light that's being um, uh, shared back and forth. And uh, but I, I don't think I can think of passages that better sort of try try to describe spiritual embodiment than C.S. Lewis and like the Great Divorce um, and the substantiality of it. But you you mentioned in um, his space trilogy where I think it is. Yeah, and, 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 and out of the silent planet, um, as they're as they're coming, there's two two moments. One is as they're about to land on Malacandra for the first time, um, and he's reflecting on falling out of the heavens into a world, and he's thinking about this light, and this this light would be, even you know, as you go further and further from the sun to the edge of the solar system it doesn't ever change in the sense that it gets less, but it never becomes any the less what it is. You could have it and have it and have it, and as long as it existed at all, it would always be what it was. And and then he's like, but when, what's behind that? Like, is it, at the end of the solar system, is that the real darkness? And then he goes, or is there something, and the narrator says he grasps for the idea, is there something out there that is to the light of the solar system as the light of the solar system is to the, you know, what we see as darkness here, such that this light would be like darkness to that light out there. And then and then he's kind of interrupted by the spaceship landing on the planet. 
And then later on, they're talking about the being of the Eldela, and mm -hmm. which are these, you know, beings that are ambiguously angelic. He, the Lewis can, repeatedly denies that they're angels, but he does say that it may turn out at the end of the day that is that they were angels. It's not really clear. Mm -hmm. um, th their bodies, that they have bodies, mm -hmm. but their bodies are made of a substance that is different to ours. It is, um, it, they're kind of made of light, mm -hmm. and so light is. Uh, a substance to them like water is to us where they can swim in light because their bodies are made of a substance that's even more subtle than light is and so forth and so yeah there's that notion of what might spiritual embodiment look like at the angelic level um, really beautiful reflection very good um, well thank you this has been a blessing and a delight and uh, safe travels as you uh, return to your family thanks so much thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to the Classical U podcast. Please do check out our website, classicalu.com, and our teacher magazine, Altum. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations with presenters and live learning event hosts with Classical U.